Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Thanks for joining us again this week for another episode of IndyCar Weekly. My name is Nathan Brown. I'm the Motorsports Insider for USA Today and the Indianapolis Star, joined as always by my co-host Jack Hardy, the driver of the number 60 Meyershank Racing Honda. And we've got another great episode for you guys this week where we will break down the Grand Prix of Portland and the mess that happened in the first of 1,300 turns on Sunday. We've got uh, another race to preview at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca taking place on Sunday, a championship battle that has heated up even more with just two races to go. Um, some great questions for you from you guys as well that we will uh, tackle here with Jack in a second. But first thing I want to know, Jack, is uh, fantasy football week one. How did your team fare? Oh, uh, uh, played Aaron Rodgers. <clears throat> played Aaron Rodgers and I had Sunyan as my tight end. And between them in our league, they got a combined of two points. So it kind of stings because the rest of my team actually did pretty well, uh, which I guess you can see where I'm going with this. I did not win. <laughs> uh, well, I lost by about 15 points, I guess. And oh, no. I played against Russell Wilson, who had an absolute day with the Colts secondary, it would appear. Um, so, yes, I, I finished the race. I was like, yeah, this is great. And then I checked my fantasy team and then just was like, oh, no, like, well, what happened to Rogers? <laughs> yes, so I, I. Go ahead. I was a lot missed, if I'm honest with you. Because yeah, I, I um had Aaron Rodgers as well, and that uh, that that surprising or unsurprisingly did not go very well. He had one point. Um, as I'm looking down the list, I had Amari Cooper was my uh, highlight of. Oh, my, there you go. And that happened on. On Thursday night uh, of all times. So Sunday, actually, fantasy football-wise, not very strong for me. Um, Did you win? Uh, went in with like a 15-point uh, projected points advantage and lost by 30. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're in the same. But I actually got quite a good feeling about my team in like a global way. Um, Cooper Cup did pretty well. You know, I think... Mm -hmm. I actually, I didn't quite, if I'm honest, I didn't understand why the Rams gave up so much to get Stafford. Yeah. Time. Mm -hmm. And then actually watching him play at the weekend, just kind of, one of them ones, you're like, oh, I guess that's why they did it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nope. So, I uh, I, yeah. It was a, it was interesting. I, I, Spent uh, two or three, I guess it was about three years out here on the West Coast before I eventually wound my way back to Indiana and took uh, the job at the Indianapolis Star covering IndyCar. But before that, um, spending three years out on the West Coast where football on Sunday is quite literally your whole day, uh, I have to say really enjoyed it. Certainly didn't get, you know, quite the uh, same viewpoint because we had a race to cover on Sunday at uh, Portland International Raceway, but it was nice to have football um, you know, on the radar kind of throughout the day, sitting in the press box, maybe watching a little bit before things got going um, on, on Sunday morning. But man, what a race did we have to cover on Sunday. Uh, played out, at least in terms of Lap one, I think, in uh, the way lots of folks expected uh, and, and really 
had a a pretty big hand in determining Sunday's eventual winner. Alex Pillow won his third race of the year. Um, no driver has won more this season. He takes over, retakes, I guess I should say, the championship lead over Pato Award. He's got a 25-point gap on second place with now with just two races to go. Uh, Alexander Rossi finishes second his best finish of the year's first podium of the year um, was really hunting down Alex pretty close there toward the end. Just maybe didn't quite have the time or uh, maybe quite the, the speed uh, in, the, in maybe the proper passing zone to find a place to make a move on Polo to, to get his first win in a couple of years now. And Scott, Scott Dixon, slots into third same place um he started the race really the same same place we had the you know the same one through three on the starting grid as we did on the podium but it certainly took quite a lot of moving and shaking to get them back in that position and followed closely after that by my co-host jack harvey in fourth place his tied for his best race finish of the year jack uh, I know you said you came away feeling like a, a pretty good race there. Maybe kind of we'll, we'll certainly get into some of the bigger picture items on how this race played out. But can you kind of just take us through very um, briefly to start about, uh, you know, reactions to finally getting a race that really felt like just about completely fell into place for you guys from start to finish? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it was a really good day for us. Uh, qualifying was definitely a mystery. Uh, you know, we had a ton of pace in um, the warm-up and in practice and then actually the race itself. But, uh, yeah, quality was weird and definitely gained a bunch of spots at the start. Uh, you know, the IndyCar were extremely clear on what they were going to do, you know, if, if people had to go down the uh, escape road and whatnot. And, um our plan was to stay on track at pretty much all costs, uh, which ended up working out pretty well. And then after that, you know, in, in truth, we just, we had really great pace. Uh, you know, our strategy works pretty well. And it's just one of them times where you come back after, you know, chatting with the team a bit and things like that. And like, why don't we just do that more often? <laughs> uh, so overall, it was a, yeah, really, really strong day for us, especially from where we started. So, um, yeah, be, if we could just keep uh, keep that up, then uh, I think things will continue to uh, play out in a good way. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, you and Elio finished second and third in uh, the lone major practice session that we had on Saturday morning. Um, and then took us a little bit of a step back there in qualifying. Uh, I don't remember exactly what position you started the race, but I, know, I think if it, it was 20th. It was 20th. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought I had in my head. And he was right there around you. That put uh, put you guys, I know, in a position you don't necessarily want to be heading into turn one, lap one at Portland International Raceway. Is there a tougher, maybe more nerve-wracking starting turn on the IndyCar schedule than than that turn at Portland for you guys? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen Portland last few times that we've been been back there be, uh, you know, so difficult to uh, to race at. Uh, you know, turn one is, uh, you know, pretty difficult. There's no there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, been on maybe not. I've always actually got through turn one okay but you know certainly it's an extremely difficult turn you know for everyone to try and navigate on starts restarts and um you know especially with indycar now saying as well that they were going to really monitor it and make sure that people weren't using the escape path honestly almost in any circumstance really at the start i thought you know alex palu got pretty uh hurt by all of that because he was you know obviously had the lead and you know it looked like maybe felix just caught scott which shoved scott into you know the inside of him and uh you know certainly you know nearly turned the race upside down and i thought that you know that one of them yellows kind of balanced the race out again on strategy wise i would say but uh yeah i mean it was it was it was it's just wild you know i think it, you're arriving at that corner so fast you know and it's a 90 degree you know first gear right hander 
you know, so it's a, it's a really tough one. I, I don't know what you could do to avoid it. I think if you did the back straight as the start line, you know, then suddenly turns 10, 11 and 12 would be chaos. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution to that is uh, in all fairness. So, um, yeah, uh, it's just a, just a tough one for everyone to navigate, I think. I just don't know what what Alex is supposed to do there. So so we're, you know, they start, Alex uh, Pelo is obviously on the inside. Um, Dixon jumps inside of him even still. He, he later said he was taking that inside line to kind of prevent anyone from, say, like, you know, the third, fourth, row i think from trying to just dive in there that could potentially cause some issues and in talking to scott after the race what sounds like happened is i think felix just barely gave him a little tap um from behind there talking about dixon and at that point at that speed you know like you're saying you just lose all sort of braking control the the type of braking that you certainly need to be able to make a to you know to go from whatever high speed you guys are taking through that front straight into turn one to make a, a 90 degree first gear turn and he basically just decided ahead of time he's not going to make it and rather than att- you know attempt to try and make a turn that he's pretty confident as a 20 year veteran he's not going to make to just dive straight through it uh and luckily both polo and rossi realized that as well and didn't try to make the turn i mean that could have taken out a large chunk of the field and certainly probably those top three guys for the whole race they dive through the infield portion they take the temporary chicane that indycar had told folks to take but i mean alex basically in trying to avoid taking out a large portion of the field and ending his day through no fault of his own drops from first in the race to 16th um, by the time that we got to the next restart and IndyCar had reordered the field. I, I don't, I don't really know what, what else you're supposed to do there. I guess he, he opted to save his day, but certainly paid a a big price in the process and certainly, you know, I didn't imagine at that point that he would be able to climb back up uh, into the heat of the race and certainly end up winning it as he was able to. Um, but quite a, quite a. I a mean, str- he was he was really he was fast. I mean, you could see how quick he was straight away. And sure. I agree with you. I don't know what the best solution to that is because if people are like, well, you know, it should be, you know, if you had to use it, then it, then it's incredibly subjective. And I yes. think IndyCar this weekend wanted to come there with something actually that wasn't subjective it was clear and it just in that moment it it hurt him a lot and that was nothing to do with anything that he had done um so i don't know what the the best solution to that is because if you open it up to well did he have to avoid that you know should have this should have that i mean that's a slippery slope then for some people probably to feel that they they think that they should have been allowed to do it, et cetera, mm. and then they didn't do it, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredibly tough one, mate, honestly. Like, I, I don't know what, I don't know what I think the the right um, solution to that, to that actually is. It's just a, uh, it's a difficult one, and it's moments like that that I don't envy, you know, Kyle Novak's job. No, no, not one bit. I, I mean, you would think that they that, you know, I think it. I, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I would assume that you would be able to look at instances of guys having to dive straight through turn one and take the temporary chicane, uh, and identify times where someone like like the top four guys did on lap one on Sunday where that was an instance where obviously there was a mistake that was made. Felix made contact with the back of Scott. Um, but those four drivers certainly did not try to do that and take advantage of anything by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I think Alex came out of that maybe in like fifth or sixth 
and the guys, other guys, you know, followed behind him after that. So that is certainly not something that he did to take advantage and, you know, try to get even more of a gap on the rest of the field. I would hope no, that it was avoidable contact, right? Yeah. Well, but, and I, and I don't, I mean, saying very, very blankly, I don't even know that Felix got a penalty for that. Um, I'd have to go back and look and see. The crazy thing is, though, you watch it. I mean, it was the most minuscule of nudges. It was. It was very small. That's probably why, if he didn't get a penalty, why they opted not to to do that. Because it was was very small. But Scott was telling me after the race, he just felt like he lost all braking capability um, in trying to make that corner. Maybe he was being extra, extra cautious. I don't know. but yeah, you wonder. Well, I, I just only from, only from I wonder if they I, I, able to look at that moving forward and maybe have some sort of a. I know, anytime you take things away from being black and white, you run into potential issues. But I just maybe hope that down the line that you'd kind of know in your head that if something like that happens on lap one, that it's probably not guys trying to take advantage of a rule. And if you see someone mid-pack, you know, mid-race just dives straight through there. And, you know, maybe if they gain a couple spots or get even close to gaining a couple spots, that's when you, you know, enforce uh, the the borders of the track. Um, but I know... I don't know. I mean, I, I completely understand when you were saying that Scott covered the line to try and prevent people doing that. You know, yeah. from what I saw, the main was never going to make the corner, you know, without oh, yes. touching people and going straight through. So, you know, in, in corners like that, I mean, really, it's, it's, I actually prefer that IndyCar made a clear statement on it and they went, no, if you have to go through, this is a penalty. Sorry. You know, because then it's down to like respect between drivers, I think. That's and true. the other thing that also should be monitored is if you can't go down the escape road, you shouldn't be able to cut the curve on the inside of turn one and be right at the wall. And I saw a couple of people do that, and that wasn't a penalty. There was. Yeah, right. You know, so to me, that I would say, look, like you, the, we are defining the track as this, and the track was defined, you know, by not being on the inside of the curb in turn one, having to hit both beacons and not going through the runoff at the start. But it also has to apply, as I mean, because bearing in mind, I started ahead of Romain, and actually, where you see where he almost got to in breaking, I mean, he was nearly mid-pack. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge maneuver for people to try and get through. And the, the problem is in that particular corner is, you know, the ideal, the ideal racing line is as far drivers left as you can get. Into the start, you pretty much have to cover the whole inside because it's, too in, it's so, in, not too inviting, it's so inviting, you know, for drivers to make a maneuver at. And also... I don't think Portland, in terms of a race, you know, overtaking is pretty limited, I would say, which also is what then drives that desire for people to make progress at the start. Mm-hmm. You know, and our before the race, you know, I chatted about it with the team and they were like, if you have to stop on track, like, and you can you know, safely stop on track and wait for the carnage to move, and people have had to go through the runoff, you will get all them spots back. Sure. You know, so our plan was at all costs do that, you know, and I think it sucks that it happened for some people. But it also, at some point, don't you have to put that on the drivers to go, no one wants to get these penalties. So let's be hard but fair, maybe. Because in the same breath, like there's always a catalyst to a crash like that. And I, didn't, I don't know if I saw anyone get penalized for actual something at the start. Yeah, I don't think so. I think... And I, you know, now that you say it a little bit more, I mean, I think, I think we also do get frustrated with IndyCar from, you know, whether that's a driver or media or fan perspective, when they make subjective calls that we don't necessarily agree with. So I guess I, I will say, as much as it, you know, it was certainly tough when you look at, you know, someone like Scott or, um, or Rossi or Polo that did nothing really wrong from what it looks like and and had to pay a penalty. Obviously, they were able to work back and and got right back up there, and it didn't necessarily hurt them in the long run. But I will applaud, you know, IndyCar for taking as much subjectivity of, out of it as possible, because obviously that is where you get into 
issues that you can really point to and say, why didn't you do this? They, uh, from what I had heard, and you certainly backed this up, they made it very clear about what this was going to be like in the driver's meeting. And and I guess in some way, maybe it comes down to Felix in some way, you just have to maybe, especially when you're at the front of the race like that, to just be not quite as, uh, as uh, aggressive and just make sure that you don't run into the back of someone because that certainly caused... Uh, a good amount of chaos. You brought up uh, Roman. Um, he uh, let me in on something after the race that uh, I, I applaud him for for admitting to. Apparently, his uh, the reason that he had such a uh, far breaking point and turned into what I think your teammate Elio called uh, a torpedo um, there, lap <laughs> one, turn one was because he forgot uh, that he was not in Europe, he was not in Formula One, and that breaking boards didn't uh, were not marked by meters, they were marked by feet. And so when he saw the 300, he was thinking in his head about 300 meters, which is about 1,000 feet instead of 300 feet. And uh, I think it's probably the first time he's made that mistake and just... Uh, I guess maybe that's what happens when you spend 10 years in Formula One and just had a, what we would call a, a brain fart. And that's why he was could hmm. be seen on the footage just kind of darting through the field there. Um, certainly was something it sounded like he didn't do on purpose. But uh, I know he took... Uh, I, mean, I, think, I think everyone would say that, you know, definitely wasn't on purpose. I mean, he you know, hurt his own race by doing that. And same with yes. Felix, really. I mean, no one ever is intentionally going out there to do anything bad at a start. Mm-hmm. Um if that's what Romain said, then, you know, I've no reason to, to doubt it. Um, and I also think that when you're starting that far back, you know, sometimes your vision is skewed. You know, people are checking up and you're not entirely sure what the checkup's for. Uh, I feel like he's maybe not done, done enough races this year to, I don't know. If you'd have said that to me after, straight after the race, I'd have probably questioned it a little bit, especially if I'd have been taken out in it. Luckily, I managed to get through it, but... Um, People laugh and joke, but I mean, there are definitely some subtleness, tiny details that, you know, is hard actually coming from Europe and coming to America. You know, a lot of things we do, you know, obviously is uh, on metric, you know, instead of imperial measurements. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those things do occasionally take a second to get used to. Yeah, he said, um, you know, there was, there had been enough, I don't know if it was, was dust or marbles or whatever it was that might have gotten just lifted just heading into the start of the race he couldn't see a whole lot in front of him to know like you know okay this is where everyone's breaking i need to be doing that too and i think just for for the you know split second that it takes to forget what uh you know which continent you're driving in uh which series you're driving in certainly that's all it takes to to screw that up uh, again um uh, well, to, I'll, I'll at least take him at his word. It's, I mean, we he's run a, a pretty clean season, and certainly not what we would expect out of him. And he did fe- seem fairly apologetic um, coming out of that. But we had a, quite a, a good amount of racing that that came after that. You got through there cleanly. Um, take us through. I think we will have a, a question on this from our fans that that put in questions. But I'll just go ahead and ask this. Now, when you guys um, had started the race, you guys were the first that finished on the the two-stop strategy. Was that the play heading into the race on Sunday, or is that something that you guys altered to because of the 10 laps that were ran under caution to kick things off? Uh, That was our play, actually. Okay. Um, You know, from where we were starting, we, we felt like, you know, three stop, you know, we, we felt like we were going to have pace, you know, and that wasn't a super concern heading into the race. Uh, you know, our concern was how far forward can you get on the same strategy as everybody else? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so in that moment, we made the decision to, before the race, to do the two stop once we got through the melee. You know, I think I keyed up the radio and said, please, let's stay on the two stop. Um, you know, because I felt like we were quicker than the cars ahead of us, directly ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And on that particular day, it worked very nicely. Uh, you know, I think starting 20 and finishing fourth was a a great result. And, uh, you know, I think 
probably someone else who feels a bit hard done by in the race is probably Graham. Uh, you know, I think he did have a a bit of a cushion, you know, over everybody. Uh, maybe not in speed, but certainly in track position at that time. I think what he was, you know, several seconds ahead of, you know, probably the next guy on his strategy. One of the yellows obviously bunched everybody together. Uh, I do feel like on on speed uh, that we were able to overcut, you know, both him and uh, Ed Jones. You know, so I feel like we we managed to, you know, benefit from the start, obviously, on the first corner, melee. But also, I, I don't think you can deny that we did have, you know, good pace, uh, you know, obviously to be the first guy home on the two-stop strategy. So, uh, yeah, it was one of them times where the, only, the biggest decision we made probably in the race that was probably off script, we didn't think the red tyres were going to last as well as what they did, uh, you know, so our second, our second, uh, sorry, our final stint uh, was actually on new reds where before the race, we actually thought it was going to be on new blacks, but uh, that was probably the biggest, biggest conversational point during the race that we had. Gotcha. Um, the one thing that I struggled with, and I, I admit I have not yet had a chance to go back and watch the race and was still, was almost kind of found myself playing a little bit of catch up on just kind of how the race was unfolding, you know, it was writing a story the f- probably through most of the first half of the race on just what happened there in lap one, turn run, turn one to get a story out there for folks to give some perspective um, and, and kind of tuned back into the race pretty intently for the, the latter half. And I still, I was re- looking back through some of the information that IndyCar gives us on a, a Slack channel, just to kind of give a little bit of a play-by-play on, you know, who's pitting what lap and who's leading and by how much. Uh, but I struggled figuring out t- truly exactly how Alex and Rossi and Dixon were able to work themselves back up to the front of the field from where they, you know, where they got positioned essentially after that first turn. I know they. I think all they they took three stops, but one of those stops was in uh, yellow flag conditions. So really, while the caution that first caution was still going on, so they took two green flag stops, just like you guys. And I I don't I mean I don't know if you watched the race again or maybe you know enough, just kind of understanding how the race played out because they took their pit stops, their final stops after you guys. Um, and then obviously we're, we're back out ahead. And I just was, if you, you know, if you have any sort of insight on maybe how those guys were still able to work themselves back up to the front, as far as how things played out from a sequencing perspective, um, that, that might be good. And maybe you don't, but. Uh, it was the first question I asked when I saw my engineer after the race <laughs> was how, how did they get there? Because in, in all, in all truth, when, when we came out ahead of Graham, I thought that was to win the race. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously I realized that, you know, those guys were, were behind us. Uh, you know, I mean, before we did that, that uh, before we pit, you know, Alex Palou was right behind me. Um, and I think that was really just a, a product of all the, the yellow flags. And I think essentially they kind of got like a free stop essentially yeah. uh you know under that yellow like you said i don't think it was enough into their fuel window where they thought they could two stop it any longer um you know and a lot of people on that strategy had to come in and take service so you know probably just that's probably what helped them the most um because then they could as we were able to save fuel and go longer and that's how i even got past uh, graham in the first place so they were able to do the same to me uh and then because they did the same you know i think they <clears throat> their tires i think were slightly better at the end um you know and things like that and obviously the what makes a two-stop hard is you know obviously trying to keep your tires under you for a long time and um yeah it was the number one question i asked post-race and what i was confused about and even my spotter at the time was like you know, racing Graham here for the win. And I thought we were too, you know, like at that point, I honestly thought that those guys behind either had to make another stop or at minimum on the same strategies as at that point. So uh, watching watching how fast they were at the end was disappointing for sure. Uh, But, you know, again, it it kind of was what it was. I think that 
you know, the Ganassi cars were, you know, extremely fast. You know, I think Alex actually, he must have, what, topped three out of the four sessions that we even had. Mm-hmm. You know, we think he was quickest in warm in uh, practice, pole, um, won the race. I mean, sometimes it's your weekend and clearly, you know, he, he and his team were, were doing exceptionally well. So um, I think it was nice to see him come back from all that melee of, of turn one and, you know, come back in a strong way. So, uh, you know, and I guess that's why going back to turn one, I like that it's black and white. But also in that particular day, it would have been extremely harsh for his, you know, championship hopes to have evaporated that way. Uh, luckily, that wasn't the case, and he was able to uh, he was able to get another win. Uh, I wish they weren't quite that, quite that quick at the end, and I wish we were celebrating, you know, a podium for ourselves. But uh, you know, from where we started, I still think that was a great result. So maybe the best way to put it, as far as those, you know, how those top three guys made it back, they essentially had. They, I, I mean, they technically made three stops, but you could almost say they essentially had a also ran a two-stop race, but they had ten laps less uh, of fuel to to try and juggle, and ten last ten lap laps less. Goodness gracious, on their tires. So when you guys are, they just maybe had to fuel save a little bit less and maybe manage their tires just a little bit less than you guys, and that's probably. It wasn't maybe like one instance that changed the race for them. I guess they just because of how it played out, the sequencing of everything, they were able to just make that little increment up here and there to to be able to work back up ahead of the guys that truly made a, a two-stop strategy like you guys did over that whole race. I would say. Okay, cool. Just uh, hoping to make sure I understood it and, and give some of our listeners uh, ability to understand that a little bit better because it was certainly it did feel like it was one of the more confusing races to to figure out how it played out. As you mentioned, you finished fourth. Um, Graham fell back to tenth. Uh, I know it was a could tell he was you know dis- a little bit disappointed from how that race played out. It looked like he you know may end up getting his first win in in four years finishes uh 10th after leaving the most laps of the day that's one of maybe kind of the notable performances that stuck with me that that race day we had um joseph newgarden championship contender finished fifth um was he i think he was also on the the two-stop strategy if i remember right um let me take a look here yes he was so he finished right behind you um marcus erickson finishes seventh uh is now 75 points back in the championship hunt not mathematically out of it but certainly you would think 75 points two races is is maybe a little bit much to make up at this point when you've got four people in front of you um i think joseph is now back 34 or 35 points in third um dixon is now back i think 48 or 49 points in fourth as i mentioned earlier he finished third Pato Ward finishes uh, 14th on the day, a disappointing day for him in the Air McLaren SP squad, though his teammate uh, Felix Rosenquist had his best race of the year, finishing 6th. Um, Pato's now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, back 25 points after going in uh, with a 10-point lead on Alex heading into the weekend. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um I think if I remember right, you said, you know, ultimately you probably would like to have the the championship lead no matter what internal or external pressures that puts on anyone. Uh, I, I would imagine that you would probably certainly feel the same way as far as, you know, wanting to have Alex's position in the, the title race if you had to pick with a 25 point gap and just two races to go. I would say so. Um, you know, he's been so strong from well, race one, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's so hard, mate. You know, like you see in these weekends, like, you know, at Gateway, it looked like he had a good lead and then he didn't coming out of that week and then he comes into this one and it seems like he's reestablished a little bit of a gap, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's the ebb and the, ebb and the flow. I mean, I hate to say the obvious thing, 
but the guy who's the most consistent in the next two will get it done. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for Alex Palou right now, I mean, it's just the case of trying to balance, I feel like, being, being, being aggressive still, um, you know, but also being kind of calm, you know, just doing it when it, gets, when it matters. Uh, you know, for everyone else, they're very much hunting all the time. And, um, you know, Alex, I feel I would, if I was him right now, I would feel like my destiny is in my control. You know, for, for the other guys, if they don't take points out at uh, Laguna Seca, then, you know, you're really going to go into Long Beach just, you know, hoping it falls your way. Uh, you know, and actually, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what all the different, you know, ramifications are and who has to finish where, you know, heading into the season finale. But I, I feel like there's a, there's a nicer moment knowing that, you know, they pop, you know, the other guys, if, if, if we were going into the season finale now, you know, Paso, Scott, Joseph would all be like, well, we have to win and he has to finish below, you know, wherever um, he does. And that's just, I think that's the part of the year that's it's exciting. You know, I think it's, it's always fun to watch the, from the driver's perspective if anybody's attitude changes or if the way they race changes. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I know Alex refers to himself as the gorilla, uh, which I must ask him about one time because, I mean, he's one of the nicest guys out there. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, at this point in the season, I think he's going to be, you know, tough to uh, tough to beat. I know they're going to see guys tested in Laguna at the end of last season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then obviously Long Beach is a bit of a, you know, free for I probably expect Alexander Rossi to be quick in Long Beach. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the season, the, the, the last few weekends have really shown how, difficult the season is and honestly how you just need to get points all the time like I mean just DNFs and you know finishing you know having really uh, terrible finishes for whatever reason just you know kill your season you know completely and uh, just against that interesting time of the year mate that's all. Yeah I seems to me I mean when you look at Scott in particular I mean he certainly probably does have to win both of these races to uh, to have a, a legitimate shot um, you know, that's, that automatically gives you a 10 point gap, at least on second place. So obviously if he were to win both those races and Polo were to finish say second place in, in both, then, then Polo still comes away with it. But when you start looking at, you know, say someone like Joseph or someone like Scott, you know, if they were to win, say, say one of them go, you know, one, two and Alex, I think, you know, say he gets like fifth in both of these races, just to throw out an example, there's a, a millions of ways of how this can play out still with two races to go. But, you know, I think the the fifth fifth place haul in points is like 30. So say, you know, if if, uh, if Joseph were to finish first in one of these races and second in the other, you make up, um, you know, 20 points in one race and 10 points in the other race. Um, you know, that's 30 points right there. And I think Joseph is somewhere around like, um, uh, like 34 points behind. So that's, that gets you almost all the way there. And, and Alex, I mean, mean, if, if you were to tell Alex right now, you know, or at least at the end of the year, you have to have two top fives. Do you think, you know, you're, you're leading the championship with two races to go and we'll go ahead and give you two top fives to, to finish off the year. He might take, might take that, but that's how tight things are where, Joseph and Scott are really going to have to have monumental weekends to cap the year to have a shot. I think someone like Pato, um, you know, with with 25 points, we've seen multiple times this year how fast 25 points can evaporate. As long as something, you know, weird like a blown engine or crashing out of either of those races doesn't happen between those two guys i think you are right i think it really will come down to uh who has the the better weekend between or better two weekends i guess between those two drivers uh the point spreads up near the top are so spaced out that you know if, if pato has you know the better average finish uh out of laguna and long beach i do think you know as long as they're not you know both finishing seventh and tenth versus like sixth and eighth or something like that i think i think you will probably get your champion from that uh, unless they both have 
two very average finishes to the year and and Scott or Joseph um, put some of their veteran championship winning experience to the test we will have to see headed to well so that so between Joseph and Scott there's eight times the champion right yeah yes correct they are guys in my opinion no matter what is happening until they are mathematically out of it you can't write them off because if you said to Joseph right now you've got to win the last two to have a chance of winning the championship he and Team Penske are the sort of team that you kind of get the feeling they could do that. I would agree. The same with Scott Dixon. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, this, this, this title race is very wide open, you know, I would say. I mean, I think Mark has done a great job. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. But I think, you know, perhaps at this point, it's more a four-horse race, I would say. And mm-hmm. the thing you've got is, you know, you've got two guys who have been through it and they know what they need to do and they know that they have to go to the final few races and win, you know, and perform well. I mean, I've, I've seen Scott have to have a perfect weekend, you know, before and still win the championship. And it was on a tiebreaker. You know, you talk about having to deal with the pressure of having a perfect weekend. And these are guys who not only can they deal with it, they've done it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you are not safe. You know, when Scott and Joseph are still in the hunt, mathematically, you are not safe. And weirder things have happened. And of two guys who you kind of just get in the sense in your belly that could do it if the opportunity were there, Scott and Joseph are probably the two guys at the start of the year that you look at and just say, you just got a feeling they might do it. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Joseph last year. Uh, he, I don't remember the exact points deficit that he had to Dixon uh, after that first race at Gateway uh, that Scott won, if memory serves me right. Scott, I mean, I think it was maybe somewhere upwards of like 120 points even. Uh, And Joseph goes uh, over the last six races of the year, first place, second place, eighth place, first place, fourth place, first place. Uh, And he... If Scott had not finished, um, I can't remember exactly where Dixon finished at St. Pete last year in the finale. Um, uh, now I've got it. So he finished third place. So jo- uh, Joseph made up somewhere like 16 or 17 points, and I think cut into like half of what Dixon's lead was. If Dixon finishes sixth or seventh at, at St. Pete last year with Joseph winning, I think Joseph comes away with that championship. So. Uh, I would agree with you on that front. I wonder, I mean, the only thing that, the only reason I question Scott and certainly I I would know, you know, he's, I I would agree with you. He's absolutely in this championship until he's mathematically not. He has seemed like he's just never quite had the full, you know, Scott Dixon dominant part of even any part of this season that we would typically expect out of the years in which he has won a championship. And that's the only reason why I, I wonder if he, if this is the year for him, he even told me a little bit uh, when I spoke with him for a couple minutes after Sunday's race, that he's almost gotten to the point where, you know, if he needs to kind of change roles to make sure and, and ensure that someone on Ganassi, meaning Alex obviously wins this championship, he's certainly ready to assist in that. I imagine that that probably wouldn't really happen until Long Beach if he's, you know, still 50 or whatever points out. Um, if he maintains this gap to Alex, I imagine, you know, maybe he switches gears a little bit. But you're right. You know, if he goes and, win, if he goes and wins at Laguna and he's 30 points back, just like Joseph was last year heading into the finale, I, I think you can absolutely bet that Scott is still trying to pull off this championship uh, until he's told wow. by Mike Hall to to kind of just help put people behind Alex to help him well, protect definitely. his. And what was interesting watching that race back, I didn't realize that those two guys had come together and I've never raced for Chip Ganassi, but I do hear like the first thing is you don't crash into your teammates. Mm-hmm. You know, and not saying that was not Scott's fault, especially when you watch it back, but I mean, I bet there was a few, more than a few people within that organization who were probably a little stressed out on Sunday. 
So I think they're pretty good about letting the drivers just race and race fairly and things like that. But the overwhelming moment and point will come is you don't crash into your teammate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I I personally just can't. I mean, I could totally see because he's you know he's a very nice guy and you know he's an absolute pro and had a ton of success himself. But I just I just get the sense that Scott's going to have one of them weekends that he needs in Laguna, you know, to keep himself firmly in the championship race. Yep. Let's look. Uh, he finished uh, third place there a couple years ago in 2019, and IndyCar's first visit there in quite some time. I'm not sure. If he had raced there earlier in his career during either the early IndyCar days or the kart days, so you've got something like that. I think Joseph, someone mentioned, has finished second uh, second there. Maybe it was second at uh, the last time we – yeah, it was second the last time we were at Long Beach. So he's got something there. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be exciting. I don't I, – I think certainly – barring something really freaky happening, I, I don't think we will be done talking about uh, you know, who has to finish where to win the championship. I think this is going to be just even more of a hotter topic once we get past Sunday at uh, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca. Let's switch gears a little bit, um, talk a little bit about this race that we have upcoming. Uh, I know IndyCar's only race there once in recent years. You know, We heard about the switch heading into 2019, and then we got there in 19 and, and weren't able to get back there last year. So this is really only the second time the series has been there in quite some time. Uh, what what can you tell us about what we can expect from uh, Sunday's race that will air uh, at roughly 3 p.m. Eastern on NBC? You still there, Jack? Uh, yes, mate. Okay. Yeah, I just was saying. I dropped out for a second there. No, no, you're good. You're, I heard you the what, whole time. Uh, what, uh, what, what yeah. can you tell us about, um, uh, about this track that we're heading to next year at Laguna? I think it's. Uh, I would say Laguna probably is as low grip, you know, permanence road course that we go to. Uh, I think it typically has been extremely high degradation. Um, you know, kind of outside of that, it's kind of one of them tracks. I feel like we, you know, we haven't really been to a ton uh, to really know how the race is going to be. Other than mm-hmm. we know it's low grip and and tire degradation is uh, quite strong. We haven't started, you know, our our prep yet. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys and the team did the did a red eye back. You know, so they only got home yesterday morning, and then you know, obviously today is Tuesday, so. They're now just getting to work probably on Laguna. So it may be a snidge early in the week to, to know exactly what we're getting into. But um, I think, you know, Laguna is one of them tracks, right? If you're, if you're a bit of a motorsport fan, you, you've, you've heard of Laguna Seca. You for sure know about the corkscrew. And it's just a, an iconic uh, racetrack, iconic racing corner. And, um, you know, I know everyone at the NCT IndyCar Series is excited to go. Uh, you know, I hope that there's a, a good crowd. And honestly, I think we were all a little nervous that some of these West Coast races, you know, may not have actually happened. So, uh, you know, very, very thankful to everyone who managed to keep that on the straight and narrow, make sure that we could, you know, and then get through Laguna straight to straight to Long Beach. And then that'll be the, the season done. So um, immense amount of work right now. And I mean, I know you're busy as well. Everyone's kind of in that busy you know, end of season, uh, you know, last push phase as they, as it goes. But uh, I think Laguna will be, be an interesting race. I actually think one of the most difficult things that Laguna is actually getting in and out of pit lane, coming into pit lane, you know, is an extremely tight left-hand hairpin. Uh, you know, the first pit box sucks there because by, you haven't even really had a chance to re-accelerate. Uh, and then also going into, coming out of pit lane in turn one is, you know, pretty snug, uh, you know, and obviously you're trying to push as hard as you can without going off the track. Uh, because if you fall off the track there, you end up coming out in the, in the middle of turn one. So uh, I think Laguna has got a lot of interesting things about it, but I hope we just have a, a smooth weekend, honestly. Is there, as a, a natural terrain, uh, permanent road course, I know IndyCar races on several of those, you know, as someone like me who's never been there before, is there... Is it anything like, you know, any 
portions of, say, Barber or Mid-Ohio or Road America, anything that you can, you know, liken it to at all? Or is it really, truly a very unique course on its own from that standpoint? Uh, uh, I mean, there's a huge amount of elevation change, you know, and I think that's pretty cool to see. So maybe similar to Road America in that sense. Uh, in terms of how the track actually drives, you know, the grip of the track and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like some street circuits have more grip than Laguna does. You know, I feel like St. Pete's a grippier track, uh, you know, once the rubber gets going and down on it. Um, no, I mean, it's pretty iconic, you know, it's just kind of its own little thing. And I think that's what makes, you know, Laguna such a, uh, such a cool, um, you know, track and a cool venue, obviously. And I think a lot of people like to be in, in Monterey, um, you know, when the season finished there a few years ago, me and my parents, you know, stayed out and, you know, enjoyed a lot of the activities that are in, around that area. So, um, yeah, I think it's very much just its own, its own, uh, its own thing, I guess, you know, it's very unique. Yeah. It's own beast, you might say. Um, well, let's dig into a couple of these questions we got from folks on Twitter before we end this week's episode. We've talked through some of them a little bit, but um, we'll go through and hit ones that we haven't already talked about a good amount. Um, let's see here. Start things off with uh, Duncan Idaho 11. We touched on this a little bit already, but he asks... Is there palpable fear going into turn one at Portland uh, and how bananas is it compared to other tracks? Well, yeah, I kind of feel like we, you know, we covered this earlier. Um, I definitely think there's a, something difficult about Portland turn one. I mean, it's a extremely quick, you know, I mean, your top speed of the track, I think is nearly there, uh, you know, into a first gear 90 degree right-hander, um, you know, and a difference even between there and, let's say Indy, which is, a, you know, if you look at the track map, a similar-ish kind of layout for turn one mm -hmm. and two. Um, it's even more condensed and it's wide, gets very narrow. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's a tough one. I think, you know, drivers normally have to do, uh, have to do their part in trying to make sure that, um, you know, we, uh, as, as drivers, don't crash into each other and stuff like that, really. So, um, yeah, uh, it's it's... Getting through turn one is uh, an absolute priority all the time. Mm -hmm. All right. From Tire Guy's wife, 16, she asks, um, how good does it feel to finally have all of your extraordinary effort pay off? I've been following your journey since 2017, and I'm inspired by your drive and determination. How hard is it to keep grinding when trying to get going and stay positive with your eye on the prize? Hashtag go, Jack, go. Yeah. Uh, that side of my life is easy, honestly. Um, you know, I will never, ever forget the pain and the disappointment and the frustrations of sitting out races. You know, even when we were, were partial seasons, before we even had a partial season, um, you know, drive even. So for me, it's it's super easy to stay positive about anything like that because I love what I do. Um, you know, I feel exceptionally grateful to be able to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that side of life is super easy, you know, and it's definitely not hard to stay positive. I love my life. I love what I do. You know, we certainly had some bad results this year, which are disappointing and obviously would have rather have, have not have had them or gone through them. But, um, yeah, I think, mean, you know, I, me may leave Sunday bit disappointed but certainly you know by tuesday morning you know I'm, I'm back in the gym i was in the gym this morning already you know pushing on trying to make as many gains as we can just because i think that's what indycar uh you know requires and to be uh, competitive in the series is what you need so it's a uh it's an easy one to uh, to stay on top of indie fanatics writes uh getting ahead of graham was vital on that last pit stop sequence as you end up p4 graham fell away to p10 how difficult was it to keep him behind you coming out of the pits or did your stick of red tires make it fairly comfortable i was a little surprised how how much grip i got from them so quickly uh which was particularly important coming you know through the last uh you know three corners there um you know kind of came out i thought that maybe he was going to make 
try and make a move into uh, turn seven. Uh, but I think I was just enough ahead to keep it covered. And then obviously, you know, he spent some push to pass to try and make sure that he couldn't do anything into uh, turn 10. And, you know, as soon as I got through turn 12, I, I realized that we had we had gone, um, you know, so I, it was a critical part of the race. I think if we hadn't managed to get past him there, it would have been, you know, difficult to have probably, I feel like if we hadn't got past him there, I think we would have probably ended up like seventh. Um, I think it would have been like a, a fair, or sixth or seventh, maybe, you know, it would have been a, probably a fair end result for us so uh that that pit sequence was was extremely critical we didn't have a great in because i had to come around uh you know takuma because he was coming into the pits too uh, and yeah the way that all played out our uh, in lap was mega our out lap was mega and yeah it just ended up working out really nicely for us question here from alan asks uh says great drive jack what would have had to change in the race that would have made your strategy and drive uh, potential for a, a race win at Portland? Uh, uh, what do I think would have needed? Honestly, probably at that moment, just didn't need that yellow. Probably needed them to be more forced into having to, uh, you know, stop for a traditional three-stopper, let's say, instead of, uh, you know, being able to overcut us and then, you know, have to, have to fuel again. Um, you know, I think in the same breath where it was advantageous as it, it brought Graham back to us and, you know, the amount that we were able to catch up to him in, in our overcut and our final pit stop sequence was uh, probably not as much as the gap that he actually had on track with us. So without talking to the team and really dialing into it, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what extra uh, we needed. Uh, we probably needed, you know, one of the Ganassi guys or, Rossi to have, have a bad pit stop, you know, or something to have promoted us to the podium, um, you know, which obviously didn't happen. So, uh, yeah, I think in the end, you know, it was, it was finishing P4 was probably a pretty fair reflection of, uh, of our day and our strategy. Dan Maldonado asks, have you finally gone to a Wendy's? I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I'm not even sure like what Wendy's is famous for. Is it like burgers? Is it like I don't know. Um, trying. I mean, they've got they've got a good. I guess you would call it like a milkshake. They call it a frosty. Um, Ooh. So those are really good. You know, vanilla or chocolate. One of those um, is probably my favorite thing to get there. I will admit it's not like a place that I. You know, if I'm really wanting which I mean is not really that often, but if I'm like, you know, on a road trip and needing to stop somewhere and just get some fast food or, you know, it's a late night and I've just got to go and get some food to eat, you know, Wendy's is probably not a place I'm like, for me, I'm like actively seeking out. I mean, it's, the the fries aren't, you know, the fries are fine. Their burgers are fine. It's certainly not something that, you know, I think they're, you know, on the upper echelon of fast food. So I, I guess I would be there with you, but if you really, Needed to have it sometime. I would get uh, just get a frosty, um, and and you could probably that's probably the best thing you could get there. So, just my two cents. Yeah, because I guess I guess to me, if if, if someone's like, hey, let's get let's get a burger, like I'd probably go to McDonald's. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. You know, and if I'm going for like fries, and I only want fries, I'm probably going to Arby's because I really like their curly fries. Good. Uh, if, uh, obviously, if you want like like I love Chick Fil A, you know. Um, so I don't know. I just, I, I guess Wendy's to me, like is not my first choice burger. And that's why I kind of see it as being. Yeah. Don't disagree with you there. Um, we've got a question here from Ben lamb, um, asks, uh, does Jack like pork tenderloin sandwiches yet? And if so, which restaurant do you like the best? And this is going to offend a lot of people, especially in Indiana. I feel like I don't know if I've ever really had a pork tenderloin sandwich. That's fair. It's, I'll, I'll be honest. I have not, as a person who grew up in Indiana, still lives there, I don't know that I've been to too many restaurants specifically that have made a good pork tenderloin sandwich. There are a couple, and I, and I feel bad now with the question not being able to come up with them off the top of the head and give them some love, but... Typically, pork tenderloin sandwich is something 
that I feel like a, a state fair type place does well. Um, I mean, I, I had one at the Indiana State Fair a month or so ago. So I almost feel like that's a better place to get one than like an actual restaurant, mostly because the weird thing about a pork tenderloin sandwich is that part of the thing is that the sandwich itself is like seven times as big as the bun. And most restaurants mm. are going to give you a sandwich that's like, you know, a little bit bigger, but, you know, certainly a lot closer to like a, a, a typical burger patty or a chicken sandwich patty um than uh than what you then the reason i guess a pork tenderloin is famous for sandwich is great if you can find it at a good place but i don't know that there are too many actual sit down restaurants that you can get a good one so on that point uh, i don't necessarily blame you yeah i don't know i guess I, i've seen people order them and again i'm not trying to be offensive it just doesn't it doesn't jump at me like oh my god i've really got to try that yeah, I think that's It fair. looks like it needs a lot of ketchup and a lot of mayo. That is uh, a fair point, definitely. Um, Doberman225 asks, um, what will you miss the most uh, when you do leave Meyershank Racing at the end of the year? Oh, so many things. You know, honestly, I mean, we kind of, we did this journey all together, you know, and uh, I know so many of the guys there, you know, I know, you know, maybe not like super intimately, but I know a lot of, um you know their life away from from the track you know their you know i know their wives names their kids names you know girlfriend names and all that and you know the thing that people need to remember is you know i i've, I've been at msr now uh you know quite a long time and you know making that decision to leave wasn't uh wasn't an easy one um you know in the same breath i, I still felt like i still feel like it is the the right one to do and you know i'm just gonna miss i'm gonna miss the people you know i i miss uh you know I'm, a lot of them guys i i know really well hang out with you know stay over to each other's houses things like that um you know i'll probably miss some of the partners that we have you know grown together with as well but um yeah to pinpoint one specific thing no i would say that's probably you know quite hard but uh yeah i'm 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 excited. I'm I'm more excited about what's coming, in 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 all fairness, than uh, you know perhaps what we you know won't have anymore. Mm -hmm. um, Darpo on Twitter asked the question, and I will read it. And I know that you can't answer it, but I'm going to uh, read it anyways because I know we're all wondering hmm. who are you driving for in 2022. <laughs> uh, I will announce that at the appropriate time. There we go. Uh, and a final question, semi-related, um, by uh, from Jack Marrows asks, are you confident a win or a podium can happen with your new team next season? Uh, and he asks uh, a separate, unrelated part to that question. Can you bring a car over and give it a spin around our hometown, Lincoln, England? I, nothing would make me happier than taking an Indy car through my hometown. That's probably, that would be like a bucket list item for me. So of that, if there's ever the opportunity to do it, I will do it in a heartbeat. I will fly over there. I would love every moment of it. Uh, you know, to share that with my hometown would be would be incredible. Um, I mean, honestly, the, the goal where we're going is to try and win races, you know, podium regularly, and try and have a push to win the championship. It's, uh, you know, something... We're working hard to, uh, you know, try and do with them. Uh, I know they're going to try and work hard to do it with me. And, you know, they've shown a lot of faith and support in wanting me to be their new driver. Uh, you know, and I think people forget it would have been an extremely easy decision for me just to have stayed where it was comfortable or safe. Uh, you know, we didn't do that. I felt like it was the right time to make a step. And, uh, you know, where I'm going next, I believe, is, is that place where I can also elevate myself from going and being, you know, on the fringe of the podium to being, you know, on the podium and put together, you know, across the whole season, consistent results. Because, you know, as I've said, I think that the potential of everyone at Myershank Racing is very high, you know, and certainly we've shown great speed a lot of times and things like that. We just haven't done it on a consistent basis. And, you know, that's what we, uh, that's what we're trying to, uh, 
trying to achieve. But I mean, the, the goals and aspirations that, you know, I have for next year, are, you know, 100% matched by the, uh, by the team. So, um, yeah, I'm absolutely confident that we can score race wins and podiums. There you have it. All right, a quick rundown of this weekend's schedule. First practice on Friday at 5.30 Eastern. Uh, that's 2.30 local in California. Um, second practice at 1.45 Eastern to uh, 45 minute sessions for you guys. We've got Firestone Fast 6 qualifying from 5 o'clock until 6.20 Eastern time on Saturday. You guys can do the math if you are out in uh, the West Coast. And then, of course, Sunday, got a another 3 p.m. start for folks there in Indiana or on the East Coast. That's noon local time in uh, Monterey, California at WeatherTech Raceway. Laguna Seca, this race again on Big NBC uh, for the second consecutive weekend before we finish things up on NBC Sports on September 26th for the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach. That's it for this week's edition of IndyCar Weekly. Thanks for all of you who submitted questions this week. Be sure to send more of those in as this season comes to a close, and we will tackle even more next week uh, on next week's episode Thanks, as always, for joining me, Jack, and best of luck to the number 60 squad here as you guys gear up for Monterey. Thank you. All right. Thanks again for listening, and catch us next week for the next edition of IndyCar Weekly. I'm Nathan Brown. Thanks for listening. 